Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with John Morabito, the Executive Vice President and CHRO of Cigna. He leads Cigna's HR and services organization and also oversees the Cigna Foundation. John serves on the boards of the Human Resource Policy Association and the American Health Policy Institute. He is the chair of the board and a fellow of the National Academy of Human Resources. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Harpreet. Nice to be here. So John, uh, you've had an impressive career. Tell us about your background and any defining moments that led you to pursue a career in HR. Yeah, um, well, it's first off, it's been a long career. So I've been doing it for, um, I've been in HR for almost 40 years now. Uh, so, so quite a while. Um, and um, I've been at Cigna for 17 years in the, the head of HR job. And uh, before that, I was at Monsanto um, as the head of HR at Monsanto. And then prior to that, I was at Pepsi, or Frito-Lay division of, uh, of PepsiCo for a while. But um, in terms of what, what got me into HR, it actually goes way, way back um, when, um, when I was in college, um, in the, the summers in between college and then before I went to graduate school, um, <clears throat> I worked in the steel mills in Chicago and uh, as my summer jobs. And um, I kind of got interested in like union and management relations just by observation of the situation. And, um, and that's kind of what led me into, um, gee, is there a, actually a career that one could make in, uh, in, this, in this type of work? And, um, and so I was an economics major in college and then um, decided to, uh, to just go right into grad school and get a, you know, a labor relations degree. And that's kind of what led me into it. You know, my early career was more on the labor side, union, union relations side. And then that eventually led into more, you know, I'd say mainstream and um, HR leadership positions. So that's, uh, you know, I, I would say that was kind of an early early defining thing that drove me into this function. You've worked for other companies like Monsanto, for example. How is the HR function different uh, in, in, in healthcare when you think of other industries? Yeah, um, well, in a, in a couple of ways. Um, I think in, in one way, you know, in healthcare, largely being a, um, a a service type organization, or a an organization that um, um, you know that is based off it's a service industry, obviously very different from manufacturing, like when I was at Monsanto or Frito Lay and so forth. So I think the first thing is in whether it's healthcare or financial services, for example, but I think in any kind of a service industry you know, your, your people end up being essentially your product. And so, you know, I, I think from an HR standpoint, if you can affect, um, if you can affect the intellect, the overall kind of intellect of your organization and the engagement or the heart. Um, so I like to think of Cigna as a head and heart organization. And if you can affect those from an HR standpoint, you know, I think you have a, a, a winning um, combination. It's a little different than in manufacturing where, um, um, you know, things outside of your control to some degree are, 
um, are certainly part of the overall success equation, um, like the weather or the price of product and so forth. So that's one thing. I, I guess the other thing, Harpreet, that I would say is in healthcare, um, you know, I find the people, uh, our employees, no matter what level we're at uh, in the organization, people are extremely passionate about the mission of the organization, the good that we feel like we can do, the good that they feel like they can do, um, because, you know, we're affecting people um, oftentimes at a really vulnerable state, and, um, and we have an opportunity to help in a really meaningful way, and, um, and that makes a big difference um, in, uh, to, to this industry overall, and, it, and it's one of the reasons largely that once people get in it, they tend to stay. The role of leadership uh, in the current crisis has been critical. Um, how, how, how do you see leadership uh, when it comes to driving workforce transformation or, or dealing with the situation of crises? Yeah, I, you know, I think what, what we have found um, at Cigna, and it's been kind of my observation, um, three things have become really important, I think, from a leadership standpoint. Um, you know, one, one is authenticity. Um, so I think, um, you know, for whatever reason in the, the kind of situation that we've been in, in a crisis situation, um, employees really want transparency and honesty um, from their leaders, you know, almost more than anything else. And, you know, they know that we don't know everything, um, but they, they'd love to hear us say that when we don't and maybe you know, try to make an effort to um, to get the answers that uh, that they're that they're they're asking about. Um, I think we're in a lot of uncharted territory, um, and employees are in it as well. Um, but they're looking to have these conversations with their leaders to um, you know to, to to really try to help the overall situation just by just by discussion and conversation. So I think authenticity is important. The other thing we've really found, um, and it's interesting because it's in a, in a world where we can't come together, obviously, <clears throat> but visibility um, has become really important. Um, so to me, you know, I, I tell my folks just <clears throat> things like just reaching out to say hello, um, you know, on non-business issues become incredibly important and motivating. Um, things like, you know, as much as I, as much as I personally dislike the fact of having a happy hour on a video, um, you know these kinds of things are are important to people. Um, informal gatherings. We've also found more town halls, more senior leader um, get-togethers, more senior leader um, leadership calls, things like that. Um, you know, in the in the early parts of COVID. Um, we were doing kind of weekly leadership calls with our top 500 people and um, getting, you know, almost 100% attendance every time. And we've continued to do them, not every week, but quite often. Um, the, the last thing I would say, in addition to authenticity and visibility, um, is, is empathy. Um, you know, people really want to, um, they really want to understand that you get what they're going through. You know, if they have kids at home or they have elder care or um, they have people sick, um, you know, whatever the case might be, I think they're looking for their leaders more so than ever to be empathetic. And um, and so I think it's really important. Um, 
you know, I've, I've heard stories of a couple of companies and CEOs that, uh, you know, they've got all their people coming into the office. They've almost like ignored um, to some, that's a, maybe an exaggeration, but to some degree, almost ignored um, the, the situation that we're in. And boy, those are companies where engagement has dropped like a rock because um, their employees just don't feel like their leadership actually gets what they're going through. Um, you know, so anyway, authenticity, visibility, and empathy are the three things that jump out. So with the COVID-19, how did Cigna face the initial challenges of creating these distributed teams, uh, having people um, in, in, in a different context altogether? Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, we were, we were a little bit lucky in, in that we already had about 40% of our workforce that was already work from home. Um, so we had kind of embraced uh, the, the, you know, the, the work from home situation for a good number of our roles in the organization. So that was a good starting place for us. But very quickly, obviously, in mid-March um, of last year, um, we moved about 90% of the remaining employees to work from home within a couple of weeks. Um, so it was a, a huge quick lift, particularly by our technology organization to get people, um, you know, with, uh, with the ability to work from home. Um, so we've had the, you know, the vast majority of our company working from home for, you know, 10 months now. Um, we launched a, a, a microsite on our in, intranet to make sure that people had a, you know, uh, kind of one source of the truth for what's going on. Um, you know, we have a, we have a good physician um, population, obviously, in our company and some that are extremely respected, you know, within our organization. And so we've made great use of our very respected physicians in terms of communications to our employees. And especially early on, you know, when we were getting so many different kind of you know, messages from the government and the news and so forth, our employees, they wanted to believe our physicians more than they did anybody other than maybe Dr. Fauci. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so that's been great. Um, you know, we, we really had to acknowledge the, <clears throat> the stress that, uh, that our employees were under, like, like employees of many companies, um, you know, again, with kind of childcare um, situations or elder care or, or all of a sudden, you know, two people working at home with kids. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a challenge for so many. So, you know, we did really embrace kind of flexibility and non-traditional hours and things of that nature. Um, managing, you know, trying to get our managers to be more equipped to manage that type of a team. So um, that was kind of our, I guess, our initial, um, you know, foray into the situation. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy talent cloud platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. 
In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the XProfi platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.xprofi.com for more information. And, and have you experienced uh, perhaps an evolution in culture? Uh, how have you kind of grappled with the employee experience, uh, technology needs, uh, th- those kind of things? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, COVID has really upended the way that, uh, that we live and work and play and all those kind of things. And all, all of that has really, you know, far reaching impacts, not just today, but probably down the road as well. Um, I can tell you, I'm somebody that in the, in the first few months, I, I, I really disliked the, the, uh, the words new normal, because I kind of, I kind of like refused to think that, uh, that, you know, that we were going to be in something brand new and different for, you know, for the long term. but I've kind of come around, um, unfortunately, to some degree, things are going to change. And, um, you know, what we left in March is probably not ever going to really exist anymore. That's not all bad necessarily either. Um, you know, I think the challenge is how do we really harness and embrace kind of what we've learned through COVID and play it to our advantage as a company, um, both from a competitive standpoint and a success standpoint, as well as, you know, for our employees um, in terms of how is it better for them. And I, I think it really can be. Um, you know, if you think about kind of where we could where we could be headed with the flexibility that we have in place, the ability to work from home, the ability to be a hybrid employee, um, things of that nature, I think are a real plus. But, um, you know, once we knew that it was not going to be a, a one or two month uh, situation, um, you know, we, we kind of brought our HR team together. We did a lot of sur- <coughs> surveying of our people. Um, developed a number of kind of support measures to help our employees, things like emergency time off. And, you know, we bought out, um, uh, bought time off that, uh, that people had, uh, had purchased. Um, we removed restrictions on things like uh, unaccrued PTO. Um, we enhanced our access to EAP service and promoted use of digital tools in that regard. Um, including kind of behavioral tools that, uh, that people could take advantage of, you know, when there were stress and mental health issues. Um, we did a um, employee assistance fund uh, that was funded by the company and by our employees for folks in the organization that needed real help. Uh, we did a scholarship program. We did Cigna care cards for, again, for people who needed real financial help and gave them a little boost um, to, uh, to help with things like childcare. So um, a lot of things like that. Um, technology, I, I mentioned in terms of, um, you know, how we really um, advanced our, our technology out in the, in the home situation so that people could work from home. And we put in a lot of tools, collaboration tools, et cetera, that people could use. And then you know, in terms of managing our talent, um, we tried to give our managers, um, you know, let's say a crash course almost on um, on how they um, how they could manage in a remote workforce. So a lot of learning opportunities um, that uh, that they that they were able to, uh, to to use to to adjust their skills. 
Um, we moved away years ago from kind of traditional performance appraisals and so forth and went to a check-in process. And um, we've really taken advantage of that whole kind of check-in uh, situation and, and process so that the people really stayed close to their folks through, uh, through that virtually. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I'll stop there, Harpreet. I mean, I could probably go on actually with, uh, with what we've done for our folks um, to, um, to kind of change. And we've actually tried to, I'll, I'll just end because you started with culture. Um, you know, we have a very, very strong and um, kind of palpable culture at Cigna. It's why people stick um, here. And, um, you know, we've tried hard to kind of maintain that um, in terms of our mission, but also now modify it with, you know, with, with how we're trying to work in a different way. Oh, that's all very admirable. So Cigna, Cigna uh, has proven to be a, a very progressive organization uh, in combating systemic racism. Uh, Cigna started this initiative called Building Equity and Equality. Can you talk about um, how this started and uh, what are some of these, uh, the, what are some of the important elements of this initiative? Sure. Um, so 2020 was, you know, in, in large part, obviously about COVID, um, but with, with the death of George Floyd and other events that, uh, that unfortunately went on, we felt like we had an opportunity to, to have a real and, you know, honest um, conversation um, about race relations in our country um, at our company. And so, um, you know, we had, we took the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to really have deep conversations, hundreds of them uh, with small groups of employees to try to understand how our people were feeling, um, you know, through this situation, regardless of their own race, um, um, to understand, uh, to learn, and just to let people talk, um, you know, to, to, you know, to some degree is kind of therapeutic, I guess. Uh, but we did hundreds of these and really learned to some degree, how we could help beyond our own company and our own kind of company borders. And so that drove the, um, you know, as you mentioned, the, the building equity and equality um, program, which is really a, a five-year program is the way we've kind of thought about it to accelerate our efforts to support DE&I um, in our communities of color. And, um, you know, recognizing that, um, that racism and discrimination do in fact exist um, and that they're more than just kind of human rights issues. They also are healthcare issues and, um, and certainly drive um, disparate impact in, um, in healthcare. And we feel like, you know, we can really make an impact of that, particularly in the communities where we live and work and, and have customers. Um, so we've done a whole number of things within the five-year initiative. We, we launched a new product um, in partnership with, uh, with Magic Johnson, actually, to, to support women and minority-owned businesses in Los Angeles. Um, we partnered with, uh, with Howard University um, and the Urban Superintendents Academy to support a, a pipeline for urban education leaders. Um, we developed a community and individual engagement plan for health equity and equality among our uh, customers in a, in a bunch of our kind of key locations. Um, and, 
you know, and more um, in, in particular things around our diverse supplier um, spend, you know, we're probably going to double in that time frame. So the, the, we've kind of approached it, or we tried to approach it as not a moment, but a movement um, with the idea that, you know, I hate to say it, a lot of companies kind of will, will jump in for a, a short time while things are really going on. You know, we felt like we're not going to just come in for a, a, a splash. You know, we want to make an impact over time. And so, um, you know, that was the whole idea um, about the, uh, the, the, the program. And our CEO says um, often, he says, you know, stop, listen, and understand. And that's how we started with the program and how to learn how the things that we think will ultimately make a difference. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there, Harpreet. And are, are these um, initiatives you mentioned, which, which of these you think is going to have the biggest impact or you're most excited about? The, the, the one I'm probably most excited about, I, I did not just mention, and that is the, um, what we're doing from a food insecurity standpoint. So we have a, within, within the building equity and equality program is also a, a focus on um, healthier kids. And we have a program called Healthier Kids for Our Future where we're supplying um, through all kinds of different means um, food. Um, and we, we were doing it largely through schools and we're still doing it some through schools, but also now directly into, uh, into the homes of the underserved um, who could use help and Obviously, we're all reading these days, unfortunately, about the uh, the issues with food insecurity in the country, and uh, we're trying to make an impact with uh, with what we're putting into food insecurity. To me, that's actually the biggest thing we can do. That's that's wonderful. Let's switch gears. Building the future of work would require uh, a shift in how we do education in this country. Mm-hmm. And you've stated uh, that you're a big believer in liberal arts education, what do you think the future of education looks like? Yeah, um, well, I am a, I, you know, I, I went to a, a liberal arts college um, undergrad. I happen to be um, chair of the board of trustees of that college now. Um, it's a small college in Illinois called Augustana. And um, so I take a particular interest um, in education. And, um, you know, it's it, it clearly, I think, um, things are going to change in terms of how employers consider um, education, how they consider the types of people that they want to hire. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, what will continue to be really critical are things like critical thinking in addition to, um, you know, let's call it the more narrow skills for lack of a better description, or specific skills, whether that be accounting or engineering or actuarial science or what have you, those types of things are really important, obviously for preparation, but I think companies will continue to want people who are critical thinkers, who understand the world, who understand change um, and how they apply what they know to the problems of of today to build better solutions. And so, I think the challenge of, uh, of kind of higher education um, turns out to be, you know, h- how you make sure that you're, you're giving young people um, or people in general um, who are seeking education, kind of that variety of skills. Um, and at the same time, you know, kind of preparing them for, um, for you know, for, the, for their, their next chapter, so to speak, in the, 
um, in the workplace. Um, probably a lot of other things are going to change too with employers thinking about things like certificates instead of degrees or, um, you know, um, coursework that, um, you know, that, that people are going to get in a lot of different uh, ways that it will be, uh, will be given. I think as an employer, you know, I mean, we're delivering learning, you know, in, a, in many different ways today, even than what we did at the beginning of COVID. Um, so, um, you know, I think education becomes, um, you know, a, a, a big opportunity, both um, in the you know, in the workplace, as well as, you know, before people come in the workplace. Does that help? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think uh, you, you raise an important uh, point here about uh, how degrees may be supplanted by certifications. Uh, ENY announced last year that they were not kind of waiving this requirement for a bachelor's degree to be considered for employment. You, you see that kind of a change coming to Fortune 500s in the U.S.? I think it's, you know, I don't know that it's going to become ubiquitous, that that will be the case. I don't, you know, I don't predict the end of, you know, college and university degrees as we know them. I think there's still a big place for for that. But there probably are a lot of jobs where, you know, a full college education may not or a full degree as we know it today may not be really necessary. Um, and people can move into a vocation, you know, without a degree, but more with specific training. Um, but that doesn't mean that our higher education institutions can't provide that type of thing as well. Um, so they're going to have to be flexible in terms of how they think about what they supply, you know. And for many students, it could be that, that a degree is still the right way to go. For others, it could be that, that maybe they don't need a full degree, but they need a more concentrated education in a particular area. So having discussed education, let's talk about the workforce of the future. What, what does yeah. that look like from your perspective? Yeah, um, I mean, the key word, and you know, I don't have the corner on this knowledge because I mean, we're all talking about it in, in, my, in my HR world, but I mean, flexibility. Um, is, is what it's likely to be all about. Um, I think that the challenge becomes how we really optimize employees to be at their best, um, how we engage them in how they can be at their best and respect what, um, what they want to do. And then, you know, find a way that, uh, find the intersection of what works for us as a company and what works for them as an employee. And so, you may have a lot of situations going forward where, you know, the majority of a non-manufacturing workforce, for example, could be a hybrid workforce, um, you know, where it doesn't matter, so to speak, where people are located on a particular day, other than when um, there's a specific need to be in an office, um, where coming together to collaborate or share, um, you know, makes a, makes a big difference to outcomes. And so, you know, for us, I think we're going to end up with a relatively small population that comes into the office almost every day. That'll probably be more senior levels, and then of course there'll be a um, there'll be a group that's probably continues to be at home all the time, and then a pretty sizable group that will be in the middle, um, where you know they're going to be uh, they're they're going to they're going to use both. And so I think offices become more you know sharing hubs, collaboration hubs. 
um, places where people come together for events rather than necessarily the everyday work. Um, and, you know, it's certainly going to change kind of the, the large headquarter type campuses, if not in square feet, certainly in the way that square feet is utilized. Um, you know, so um, I think technology becomes much more important as well, you know, so the people we're going to have to make sure we provide a, a seamless technology experience for folks also that, you know, that, that probably we, we don't have quite the corner on today. And another um, very interesting uh, change that uh, we we're seeing is uh, the rise of uh, freelance talent. So, uh, you know, uh, in, in the 80s and 90s, it was less than 10% in, in the U.S. workforce. And today it's over 30% uh, and, you know, may end up being 50% in the next couple of years. Uh, so how, how do you see contingent talent uh, uh, fitting into uh, corporate workforce? Yeah, I, you know, it will fit. Um, I think the statistics are of, uh, you know, the, the, the statistics around freelance talent are a little bit overblown because that includes like Uber drivers and, um you know, a, a lot of those independent service contractors that are not necessarily associated with a, a company, so to speak. Um, so, but, but even when you back that group out, there's no question that we're moving in that direction. Um, I think it's going to depend on the organization, obviously. I, I think, um, you know, the, uh, the, um, the, the, the kind of gig workers, so to speak, will, um, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a place for them in some organizations more so than others. And, um, you know, where, where you can come in and out for project work, um, you know, probably gonna see that more in technology than you will perhaps in other parts of a company. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's a trend that will continue. Um, and, um, you know, but, but I, I'm not sure I'm necessarily in the camp of, you know, that that, you know, the gig employee is going to necessarily kind of take over, so to speak. I don't quite, I'm, I'm not quite as personally bullish on that trend as maybe some are. What, what role does technology play in continuous learning and upskilling at Cigna? Yeah. Um, so, boy, technology is just becoming obviously more and more important to, to, to learning and upskilling in the environment that, that we're in. And I think even when we're, you know, kind of into the, the, whatever the next chapter turns out to be, I think it continues to be quite important. Um, you know, we were always kind of in a traditional learning management system uh, with specific, you know, kind of training courses that, uh, that people could access. And... Um, Earlier this year, we, we implemented a, um, a, a learning experience platform, which, which sounds a little bit like just words, um, but really it's a very different kind of way of learning just because of the amount of things that we now have available for people to access um, has, you know, just um, exponential growth in, you know, the, the amount of things that um, the people have at their fingertips to, uh, to learn from a lot of different places, all connected to their own learning plans and competencies and so forth, which that's always been the case for us. But now it's really a great expansion of how and what people might have access to, which is pretty cool. Um, just this ability to really draw on a, you know, kind of a multitude of sources. Um, 
you know, the, the in-person learning for the time being is obviously, you know, not being used at all. I think some of that will come back um, in certain situations, but, um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I, I'd say the decline of in-person learning is, um, is pretty, you know, will, will continue to be pretty rapid kind of, you know, post, uh, post-COVID. Any, any words of advice for HR leaders that are trying to grapple with the, the current realities and are trying to transform their HR function? Um, you know, the, the, the thing I would always tell people, um, I mean, I've been doing this, like I said at the beginning, for, you know, 40 years. So, um, you know, qu- quite, quite some time. And um, my advice always has been, put the most talented team around you that you possibly can put people around you that, uh, that are going to ask the tough questions um, and are going to be, you know, kind of think differently and creatively about solutions. I would say the same thing today. Um, you know, I, I think the best HR leaders are the ones who um, they, they put a team together that is diverse and not just in their backgrounds, but more importantly, frankly, in the way they think in the way they come up with solutions and the ideas they have to, uh, to attack problems. Um, always start with a focus on the business and what we're trying to do to enable the business. Um, but, you know, have leaders in your organization that, um, that are going to be willing to, uh, to put the tough questions on the table and, um, um, and, and, and have good solutions to uh, that, that could be, you know, kind of, creative and different versus the, you know, the same old tried and true things. I mean, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you can't beat smart, well-intentioned people um, who are focused on the business. I think that's what it's all about. That's well said. Uh, John has been such a pleasure having you here today. Uh, thank you so much for your time. All right. You're welcome, Harpreet. I was glad to, uh, glad to participate.